Hello, this is Sierra Tyson, ELA Specialist at Unbound Ed. This year, I've launched a project called The Education Nomad, where I travel across the country to meet with educators to learn more about the intersection of equity, curriculum, and education. You can learn more at Education Nomad on Twitter and The Education Nomad on Instagram. Today, I have the honor of having a conversation with Sonja Blotner. Ms. Sonja Blotner is the pre-K through 12 ESOL supervisor on the secondary curriculum team in one of the largest public school districts in the Maryland area. She is a 25-year veteran in public education, and during her tenure as an educator, she taught a range of both Spanish and ESOL classes at the elementary and secondary levels. As an instructional specialist, she has also written curriculum for elementary ESOL students and developed professional development for both ESOL staff and administrators. She has presented several times at Teachers of Speakers of Other Languages conferences about professional development and curriculum development resources for district leaders for English language learners. She seeks to inspire learning and innovate for excellence to improve outcomes for English language learners. It's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Pleasure to be here. Yes, I had a lovely opportunity to walk through some of her schools today, and it was amazing what I saw. I won't tell you exactly what I saw yet. I'm sure it'll come out within the conversation of the podcast. But let's start with, tell me a little bit, Sonja, about your path to becoming an educator. We want to know more about you. Okay, so, well, I began studying psychology. It was very interesting. I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and then decided to um, really move into the field of education, um, specifically instructional systems design and development because I was real, always interested in how systems work and understanding what that meant. I also got a chance to travel to Spain and to Puerto Rico and to Jamaica and Antigua and just was always fascinated with just how things work out there in the world and English language learners and different cultures and languages. And so it's been something that's really been fascinating to me for many, many years. And so that kind of led my path from first teaching Spanish to then teaching English to English language learners. Began teaching English overseas in Spain for a little bit. And then when I came to this country was then work, came back to the country um, I then was working in, in Arundel County for a while and then in another district here in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so having really enjoyed working with um, students for over 25 years, have been teaching, developing curriculum resources, and then also um, supervising a program mm -hmm. with over, twin at this point now, 20,000 English language learners wow. and, and growing. So it's a lot of great work. A lot of work that needs still still needs to be done, um, but we're really excited about what we've done so far as a team. That's great, and all that traveling reminds me of my project traveling from state to state. You learn so much mm. when you step outside of your Absolutely. own personal bubble and see what's really happening and putting it all together. Well, uh, there are a lot of acronyms in education. So for our listeners, can you give us the meaning of ELs? ESOL, ELD, and LMs. We just love our acronyms. We memory, definitely do. <laughs> so English learners and English language learners, I think at this point in the literature, is fairly synonymous. Mm -hmm. um, and it's 
tends to be the broadest term of stu um, students that are out there in public education that are learning English, either as a second or a third or a fourth language. So it's really meant to kind of elevate the fact these students who are multilingual students who are mastering English. And that's EL um, and ELL. That's correct. Okay. So then you'll also hear the terminology of ESL and ESOL. Um, these tend to describe the programs that are helping students learn language. And so they kind of have all many multifaceted, it could be counseling, parent outreach, instructional components. Um, and so it, that term tends to be interchangeable depending on where you are in the country. Mm -hmm. Then you'll hear the term, I think you didn't mention, but I want to mention it, English Language Development, ELD, mm -hmm. tends to be the language instruction where you're really looking to develop language proficiency for students. And so that's very explicit instruction. Some people call it a LEIP or language um, uh, education instructional program, you know, okay. so there are lots of different terminology out there that we use, and I know those acronyms can be difficult. Yes. Then the, another terminology that you'll hear in the literature and also in the data is LEP, which okay. is Limited English Proficient, and that is the terminology defined by the feds on students that are still on their way to learning English. They're not quite proficient yet. They haven't met, they haven't met the targets of being proficient, and so they're on their way. So you said something about Maryland. Can you tell us more about the demographics of EL students in your district? Okay, so um, we have about 28,000 English language learners in, in our wow. school system. We, there's another neighboring school system that's almost about as large as us, and they have about 26,000. So between the two of us, we house about 75% of the English language learners in the state of Maryland. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Your students, although they are ELs, they are still working with grade level complex texts. The tasks are aligned to the standards and really pushing them exactly. to do the work and, and it moves them faster than having them with work that's below grade level and it looks like they're doing all this work but really it's not moving them because it's not complex enough for them. And they can do the work when we push them, but it starts with pushing ourselves. Exactly. It's not easy. Our students will push back, but we have to stand our ground because we know that it will work. Absolutely. And so what, one of the things that kind of, kind of piggyback on what you're saying, Sierra, when I, um, when I think about um, some of our schools, one of the challenges that I see is that it's so easy to say, oh, they're reading below level. Put them in a reading intervention. Mm -hmm. And... Here's the challenge, though. When you, we continue to put our kids in reading interventions, that means that we're continuing to put a cap on what they can access. So in some ways, we think we're helping students, but we're literally limiting how far they can go because they can never go above that ceiling of where they are. Now, if not to say that some of our students don't need reading interventions. Some of the data might tell us that that's necessary if they're, on, they're having difficulty decoding, or maybe they might have some challenges with comprehension. Mm -hmm. But there are ways, I'm just thinking of some of Diane Steyer-Fenner's work where she talks about the need for our students to really engage with complex texts, help them analyze the language of complex text, mm -hmm. really make sure that we're building, we, we consider their proficiency levels, but we are giving them opportunities to engage with that language. Because the only way they can learn it is when they are engaging with that complex language. And so that's something that when we've seen our students, we compare students that have been in reading intervention in ESOL, English in ESOL, 
you know, we've seen huge growth for students that are in English and ESOL because they're exposed to more rigorous content. And so I think we found a sweet spot where not only are we saying English and ESOL, but within the ESOL space, we're ensuring that our students have access to rigorous text at the same time while we're developing their language. Now, um, can we use the resources exactly as they, as they are? Not quite. We do have to make some adaptations because they're still learning language. Mm-hmm. But we've found some techniques like thinking about the juicy sentences that are in yeah. text knowing how to elevate certain sentences that highlight certain language structures that need to be taught. And so that might mean, okay, so if we're looking at adjective clauses, where do we see that in the text? How do we elevate that te- that um, language and really explicitly teach it then plug it right back into the text so the students get to practice and apply their learning? Mm-hmm. And our teachers are saying that they're, they're doing that and they're practicing it and they're seeing some great results for our English language. So it's very promising for us to see the growth that we're seeing in the data mm-hmm. and also the engagement that we're seeing in the students. Like they're sitting on the edge of their seats and yes, they're I saw really that today. Fun. They're engaged. They're they engaged and, and they, they were very confident. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to share with the audience this enduring understanding that you shared with me. It reads, all teachers and leaders must ensure that ELs have equitable access to the content curriculum. So can you explain in more detail why all teachers and leaders must ensure this? So sometimes we have found that, and I think that across the country, many um, folks will find that when we think about the, um, the success of our English language learners, we tend to look at the ESOL teacher and what they're going to do with the ESL teacher or the bilingual teacher, and they're responsible for moving the data. And so when we say all teachers, we're really saying that ESOL students are usually in language-specific classes for a very short part of their day. When they're in a science class, it may be KOTOR or not, when they're in a social studies class, a math class, an English class, the teachers need a certain skill set so that they're able to differentiate their content and make it accessible to students. So it really is about all teachers, not just the ESOL teacher, being able to teach that language. And Dutro and Moran talk a lot about you're doing that explicit teaching of language in your ELD block, mm-hmm. but you also have opportunities for front-loading and teaching language all across the day. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do we build the skill set of our content teachers yes. so they're able to do that work as well? So with the standards a lot of times the language standards in our ela classes are often skimmed over mm-hmm. we focus on reading and writing sometimes speaking and listening but if you ask someone what are the language standards they might fumble through their papers to find them how do you address the language standards or how do you help teachers integrate the language and literacy standards for ELs? So- I would say that for us, it's still a work in progress. Um, one of the things that we've been really looking at as we've been doing our research is we've come across the language progressions that mm-hmm. are built in to some of the work that has happened up in New York as they with that grant that they received from the Gates Foundation. And um, we came across that we loved it because for every single standard, for the, all of the listening, the speaking, the reading, the writing standards, they have done some learning progressions that show what ESOL students at different language proficiency levels can do. 
-hmm. So one of the things, and so I would say this is still nascent work for us that we're looking to really begin to roll out for next year, is a lot of professional learning for our ESOL teachers around these standards as well as our content teachers. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're planning to do professional learning this summer. We're also looking at building some online modules for teachers and, and also plugging into existing venues for some of our, with some of our content colleagues to make sure that we're building the, and providing these resources to teachers to help them. But it's absolutely important to make sure we're making those connections. When I think about language for content teachers, I think it's, sometimes it can be so overwhelming there are two really big, there are three big areas for them to think about. One is vocabulary. And vocabulary is challenging when I think about some of Doug Lamov's work because you have to think there's so much vocabulary in everything. A teacher can't teach it all explicitly. So I think teachers need to think about it from the perspective of there are explicit teaching of vocabulary and you have to be very selective of the kinds of words that you select thinking about Isabel Beck's work, so we're looking at those tier two words. Those are the words that you're probably going to be teaching explicitly. But you also need to be thinking about the implicit vocabulary that you're embedding into instruction. So that's one piece. The other piece that I think many content teachers need to understand is different disciplines have different kinds of language structures. If you're mm -hmm. mathematics, if you're the science, let's say, for instance, you're going to have a lot of procedural language. If you are teaching in social studies, you have a lot of passive um, voice, right? So how do you make sure that you're teaching our students that language that they need to learn? And so you need to sometimes pull out those structures and make them visible for students. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is looking at academic discourse. So how do we make sure that we're engaging students in discourse? Now, teachers can also embed the vocabulary and even some of the structures by using language frames and paragraph frames mm -hmm. and building that into instruction so that our students are able to access and be part of the discourse in that classroom. So how would you coach an, an educator who has a culture of low expectation for ELs? How would you coach someone in those PD sessions? Okay, so if I think about someone who has low expectations, again, I think sometimes you have to show them what's possible. And I'm thinking about um, sometimes behaviors precede beliefs. And so that means that you, they need to have the opportunity to actually do the work. That's actually one of the reasons why we tend to do more hands-on work. Mm -hmm. It takes that that breaking tasks down. Um, some of the things that we've done for some of our educators is get them to start and think about what does a proficient response sound like. Once you can kind of picture that, you can you're then working back from um, that highest level of a model. Mm -hmm. You can then say, well, based on that, what are the language frames that students might need? Based on that, what are the vocabulary that needs to be taught? Now, you still might hit some um, resistance, and so I would say to you that probably in many of our sessions, those who have low expectations, it probably stays pretty hidden, and that's why we don't just stop in our PD session. We always link it back to going into the classroom, did it actually make it into the classroom, yes. and then giving feedback to them, and again, thinking, as I mentioned earlier, as a reflective practitioner, so we're reflecting with open-ended questions, and coaching 
to kind of look at shifting behaviors. Sometimes we might have to also then pull in that administrator because there used to be that we just would work with the teacher by ourselves. Mm -hmm. But if you really want shifting and, and change to happen, you've got to get that administrator on board as well. So it might be that we go in together and observe mm -hmm. so that that way when we're not there, because we're not there every day, that administrator can then continue that work. Mm -hmm. So when I think about a teacher with low expectations, it is about how do we make sure that we're onboarding the administrator and we're holding that teacher to, accountable to what needs to happen for kids. So we have some questions from our listeners who sent them in ahead of time because they wanted you to answer them. So I'll start off with the first one. When you walk into a classroom with ELs, what are you hoping to see and hear? So one thing that I'm expecting to see when I walk into a classroom, it should not be silent. There should be lots and lots of discussions going on. It, you should see structured engagement happening. It should be planned ahead of time. There should be routines in place. Communication should be happening. It should be obvious that these routines are in place for academic discourse to be happening all the time. Mm -hmm. The teacher should not be doing all the talking. The students need to be engaged. And there should be a very clear language objective that that teacher is working on in every single class. And if I were to sit down with the teacher before or after that class, they should be able to tell me their trajectory of where the students are going and where they've been, and I should see a clear line and a thread of where they're, how they're moving their students language-wise. Because the ESOL teacher, if we're in an ESOL classroom, I should be seeing that they understand where students are and what they need vocabulary-wise, what they need language structure-wise, and how they should be helping them move and progress. When it comes to discourse, especially from beginning to intermediate to advanced, we should be seeing that teachers are expecting students to use more complex sentences over time. Mm -hmm. That should be built in orally, so they should be expecting that, and they should see that in writing. Thank you for sharing that. So earlier, we talked about how all teachers and leaders must ensure that ELs have equitable access to the content. So this is from one of our math friends. How, what are some scaffolds for ELs for math? A lot of times when we think of um, ELs and supporting them with scaffolds, we think of in an ELA classroom. Mm -hmm. But what do, what do these scaffolds look like in a math classroom? Do you have an example or maybe another content area like so, science or social so studies? So let me think about it. I mean, I think when we think about mathematics, it definitely is challenging. But math has changed over time. We have the standards of mathematical practices. We're expecting students to really justify their thinking and be able to explore various ways and to represent, do representation of various math concepts in various ways. And so our students, our L's, need the opportunity to do that. But then when they have to justify and explain their thinking, they might need language frames and response frames to help guide that academic discourse. Because for them to justify their thinking, just because they speak another language doesn't mean they, mean they can't think, right? They have ideas with the use of manipulatives and also giving them those language frames to help them frame their thinking, you, they can also explain their thinking. So that I know we've worked with our math team here um, and we have a math specialist who's been doing phenomenal work with our English language learners. And that's a lot of the work that she's been doing, really helping the math teachers to understand how do you engage the students in academic discourse, math, the academic discourse of mathematics mm -hmm. 
What does that look like? How do you help students grapple with math problems to learn how to solve things on their own and then be able to justify their thinking either with um, drawings, um, statements, discussion in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. And so it's really critical for our kids. Definitely. Do you have any experience with supporting math teachers and implementing the mathematical language routines from Stanford's understanding language? I personally haven't, but I know that our math team has. I know they did attend that MOOC, mm -hmm. um, and they were then able to take those strategies and embedded into professional learning that they provided for some of the Algebra One teachers, geometry. We did have the opportunity of doing some planning with them. And so as they were planning for summer PD, mm -hmm. we were able to do some work to kind of get to build some of those strategies into that professional learning for teachers. It's still a work in progress. I know it's, mm -hmm. it's not easy. And doing something one time, and it's never just one time. You have to always think about that learning progression. Yes. Um, and it really, I believe, has to be linked so that you're kind of doing this kind of that, that study, that lesson study approach where you're kind of learning something, you're applying it, you're bringing it back, you're analyzing data, you're looking at what student writing responses were, and then you're kind of deciding, did they really get it, did they not get it, mm -hmm. and then applying, to, well, what will our next response be? Yes. So it's kind of that, that cycle. But um, yes, I would say that our math team has been doing a lot of that work. I agree with you there. So we're going to wrap it up. I feel like I've learned so much. Hopefully our listeners have too. For teachers and leaders that are looking to learn about how to support ELs, what advice would you give them? Or do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, one of the things that we've been doing recently, and we we're looking at how do we kind of really shift thinking in our district around ELs and so we can get to even better results kind of help them even get to um, higher um, achievement. And we've decided that we really want to kind of frame it around three big areas, right? Um, language, really looking at teaching that, explicitly teaching language. And what does that mean? What does that look like when you're teaching vocabulary, language structures, and engaging students in rigorous academic discourse around complex texts? Language is critical. Um, the other pillar for us is rigor understanding that our students need to be engaged in rigorous content. And that's not just in the content classroom, but that's in the ESOL classroom space. And understanding what that looks like means that we've got to really help our teachers shift their instruction to align to the academic language of the state standards that their students are grappling with. And what that looks like might vary from place to place. It could be that they focus in the mathematics area or science or social studies or English language arts, but they have to be looking at really stretching our students so that they can grow. And believe it or not, our students want to be stretched. They do. And, you know, and it's funny, sometimes you'll get pushed back in the very beginning, but as you work with the students, they become more engaged and excited. And we've seen that shift for some of our students in classes where we've tried more rigorous content. And then the other piece is equity understanding what do those equitable practices look like? What does equity mean for our students? And again, this goes back to that mirror for administrators and leaders, including district leaders. Are we effectively funding our programs if we do believe that our English language learners can be successful? Are we honest with ourselves and are we adequately funding these programs? Are we making sure there's enough um, in staffing? 
Are we making sure there are enough teachers in place? Are we making sure there's enough money for professional learning for all teachers to truly ensure that our students have equitable access to various opportunities in the district? Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that if we do that well, that we can move our students forward. So with that in mind, I would say language, rigor, and equity is what it's gonna take. And all of that is surrounded with collaboration and making sure that we're advocating for our students. Wonderful, thank you so much, Sanja, for, well, me, for chatting with me. Pleasure talking yes. with you today and looking forward to future conversations. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you.